Whether it's dismantling the fossil fuel industry, creating a solar-powered utopia, or simply desiring to hear more birds in the sky than planes, this is Idealistically, a podcast where we discuss what we would idealistically want in an ideal world. Hello! Depending on how often you listen to the podcast or whenever you've clicked onto this episode, it may have been a little while since there was an episode. But I am happy to say I am back. I had a bit of an unplanned break due to moving house, or should I say moving podcast studio. And yeah, I just needed a little bit of time to like gather myself together, get back into the swing of things. And I'm really excited to be back. In all honesty, I've taken a little bit of a step back from all things climate and social justice related, partly because, yeah, I've just been living life and I'm going to admit, I'm going to be a bit of a guilty activist and admit it's been very nice. Yeah, it's been nice to just switch off from it for a little bit. And I think sometimes we as activists, uh, we kind of, we refrain from saying that because we don't want people who have yet to kind of start their learning and unlearning journey Uh, to already take a step back and be like oh you know what I need a break too but it was definitely needed definitely needed to happen and honestly like it had to happen because there is no way you can record a podcast do activism do freelance work all at the same time as moving house I'm really excited to be back having these conversations already started recording them and it's it's just really a pleasant experience quite like it's a playful thing and I hope that comes across Before I jump into yet another amazing imaginative world with a great guest, I have quite a fun and exciting announcement for anyone who is listening to this episode at the time of upload or around that time. I am happy to announce that Idealistically will be having its first live episode at voice box at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. You can join me for free on Friday the 15th of October at 7.30pm and I'm so happy to say that I'll be joined by Arja Barber who has just published her first book, Consumed the Need for Collective Change. As I ask all my guests, I will be asking Arja what she idealistically wants in her ideal world. Don't fret if you can't make it because the episode will be recorded, but if you are able to come along, then that would be great. There are also some other amazing events on the lineup, including an event with Lena Norms, who was a previous guest on my podcast. So I will leave the link to the voice box lineup in the description. That is Friday the 15th of October, 7.30pm at Cheltenham Literature Festival. now though I'm so excited to get back into the swing of things with this great episode where we discuss all things technology, indigenous solutions and creativity with an incredible educator who is going to introduce themselves. I'm Joyce Lynn Longdon, I am um, 23 years old and I live in Cambridge um, in the United Kingdom and I'm currently a PhD student at Cambridge looking at the application of AI to climate change issues, so specifically looking at um, acoustics, machine learning and indigenous knowledge and challenging some of the systems that we have within tech and science. And I also am a founder of Climate in Colour, which is an online education platform and community um, for the climate curious and basically making conversations around climate more accessible and diverse. I'm really happy to have this conversation with you 
I love your platform especially and also um, I know we did a, a panel together back at the Cheltenham Science Festival um, and I learned a lot more about your work not only on the panel but just like having conversations with you and I was just I was left very inspired um, so yeah I'm really glad to have you on. Um, the first question I ask is because I know it can kind of it changes depending on what's going on in the world at the time do you currently find it easy to envision an ideal world? I think so but I think it's more of a dynamic thing than like just an envisionment of an ideal world I think that as I'm like learning and interacting with more people more books more materials more resources I get a clearer idea of what an ideal world is it's sort of like you know if you kind of had a like condensed window you know if it's been too warm in the house and the window's sort of frosty and then you kind of like wipe away and you get a clearer view like I think that's how I would um describe it and obviously sometimes that view gets a bit more muddied when as you say like things happen um in the news or you know you see you know governments lying or corporations lying those things muddy you know for you whether you can feel that that world is possible but that envisionment is still there so I guess yeah for me I do find it easy in a sense but it's more of like a ongoing like active um practice rather than like I can't really have a picture in my mind about what an ideal world is. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's part of my excuse for making this podcast is that it changes for me all the time. And having this, these conversations means I can kind of develop that idea and I don't have to have one set in stone. I actually quite like that for everyone. Like it's it's going to change as we learn more and it kind of has to so that we can make our versions of the future kind of more inclusive and diverse and everything like that. So yeah, I, I totally appreciate that. So let's kick off. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you envision your ideal world? Um, the first thing I envision is just people having joy and freedom. And obviously, in many senses, some of us might think that we're free. But really, you know, I think one thing that I find really interesting is when you ask people who are doing jobs that have a lot of purpose now, say, working in climate, working in healthcare, working in all of these really important spaces, there's actually lots of other things that they would rather be doing. And that's not to say that they don't enjoy their current jobs, but a lot of, if you're working in this space, a lot of your work is to try and fix broken systems and not necessarily on what you would want to do, like, in an ideal world. And I think that I would love to see people having the freedom to commit their lives to exploration and learning and um joy rather than kind of these feelings of overwhelming pressure to help change systems of oppression which obviously is really purposeful and really important now but I guess if we're talking about an ideal world it'd be great to see people just having loads of joy in their work or not work whatever they want to call it um and and being in community within that joy so yeah I can just see lots of people together experiencing life in a joyful way that's what I see yeah definitely it's definitely been like a reoccurring theme it's kind of like this idea of like I guess like this idea of not working to live basically like that's not the main focus it doesn't take up the majority of our time um and I think some people definitely see that as like really radical but then 
is it really to want to just have the experience of just living and for whatever reason it is you know what what brings you joy it doesn't matter what it is um so yeah I definitely love that what would you say is like one thing you would like to have more freedom to experience and have joy with I think in general what I'm doing is what brings me joy but I think it's the pace at which I have to do it and I you know before having a platform or anything like I research things as I want to not because I need to like put them into a resource or anything like that and also um I think really like I take quite a long time to think and digest about different concepts so I would love to continue doing what I'm doing like learning about our environment learning from other people reading drawing painting exploring connections with nature and other people but just at like a much slower rate um so that there is enough time for kind of contemplation and reflection I think that's the thing that I feel like I would love more of um and that I would love from other people as well because I think sometimes I feel rushed by other people because everyone else is in this like frantic state of needing to do this, needing to do X, Y, and Z, give us this answer, give us this response, give us this resource. And I'd love if we just had a more sort of, um, yeah, just a slow, a slower um, way of life, I think is what I, I would want. I love that. It already makes me feel calm just imagining a slower world. And I definitely relate to the, like you kind of take end up taking on other people's speed. Like I even just from being on social media, like people are panicking about other things they're doing. And I'm like, should I be panicking about that too? Should I be stressed about that? It's like, nope, nope. I need to do things at my own speed. So what would you keep from the current world for your ideal version? And it could be more than one thing. Mm. Um, you know all of this huge amount of curiosity and passion that I do see especially our generation having it's like that energy is really empowering and like energizing and I'd love for you know even if life did become slower there was still that huge amount of passion huge amount of advocacy huge amount of creativity like I think people are so creative are so are doing such amazing things um with their minds and with their hands and with their bodies and yeah I wouldn't want to lose that um it's quite a hard question (laughs) because like I would also say like oh I'd love to keep you know our natural spaces but like realistically I'd want our natural spaces like way back like I probably haven't experienced you know the natural world in to the extent that maybe I would want to in the future um so it's quite hard. I like that. It's a tricky question because I think it's one of the things we don't like. We don't talk about it enough. Again, it kind of just goes back to again a reason behind this podcast is like wanting to focus more on the stuff that we're fighting for rather than against. And so it's actually quite interesting when you kind of stop and think. Actually, what do I want to keep? Like I'm always so focused on what I want to get rid of. But the thing is, I I, I agree. But this isn't an issue of not knowing what I want what I'm fighting for because I I have a vision of what an ideal world would have it's more so that the current world we're in there's not too much I would like to (laughs) take forward I guess if that makes sense so you know I can definitely imagine 
you know, I have a good idea of what I would want life to look like, but it's that currently it doesn't look anything like that, or it looks like that in a fraction of what I would want it to look like. So um, community, how safe we feel, how connected we feel, how energised we feel, how much time we have, those are all things that I would want, but currently we just don't have or have in a satisfactory level yeah no that totally makes sense I definitely agree with like community especially living in the UK I think it's something that we seriously lack um and I think I remember like early lockdown like there were a few moments of like seeing people organized like getting things delivered to people who needed it and stuff and I was like this is just a small a small slither of what we need more of and it it is really like heartbreaking to I guess see that all slip away like it's a shame that we needed it in the first place but I think it's part of us it's part of our job as individuals to try and make that community as well I think we did talk about this at Cheltenham Science Festival where we were saying you know like it's not just about waiting for others to come to you or like because there's not a sort of organized community that you just you know sit back and go oh well there's no community um I think you can you can in many ways start to play or be a part of that ideal world you want even if all parts of that ideal world aren't here so if you want community you can foster community in your own ways and that is part of you know living an ideal world within a non-ideal world and I think that's like a case for joy as well yeah absolutely I 100% agree and I'm, I'm someone who has had to in a very like middle class sort of snooty town (laughs) like being one of the the few organizers of like different groups is like seeing the same people come up time and time again putting themselves forward to like help join those dots and like start different community groups it's like we need more people to step up and not keep waiting because otherwise the burden is all on the same people like a little bit more about what you do and how that can kind of tie into this conversation as you said at the beginning you're working on um, applying AI to climate action so I was wondering like how can that help us create an ideal world and also just maybe help explain a little bit about what AI is and what you're really working on because I have no idea (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay this will be really helpful because I think that there's so much misconception and so much miscommunication of what AI really is in like to the public to the general public and also um you know most of what we speak about and hear about with AI is negative and that's rightly so because all we're focusing on is the capitalistic and abusive part of AI and I think it's important to make clear that AI and machine learning are like quite different things and most of the time AI is used because it's a buzzword but what the person might be doing is machine learning and machine learning is essentially training I think, yeah, a good way to put it is machine machine learning is training a computer through equations. Basically, it's a lot of maths, a lot of calculus um, to find patterns in data and then to predict given those patterns. So that's it in a nutshell. And that can be used in many different ways. As we've seen, it can be used um, in social media where 
they give us an algorithm and they're take the algorithm is taking in information about what you like what you go on and then predicting more content that you would like and so so much of the brilliance of AI and machine learning has been co-opted like most things by capitalistic um selfish um and I guess money-centered um intentions and and even when we do move to spaces where we're trying to use AI for um environmental work there again is a huge amount of bias and a huge amount of um confidence in AI being this omniscient power and all you need is enough data and that's going to solve our issues and it's a really big problem within the space um and i think it's a bigger symptom of just how western science has been built to think about problems and to think about issues and to assume that there is a homogenous approach to issues and one more thing i just want to say about what ai is before i like talk a bit more about my work is that it's presented to us as a general public as something that's like, it's presented as something that's this sort of like computer with a mind of its own. And it's like, you know, robots. And, and that is like a very small part of AI. Um, that's, um, yeah, that's like, a, I don't know if you have the arts, you know, you have ballet and you have illustration and they're both two very different thing and they live within the same umbrella. Um, and actually, the main thing I want to get across is that AI is very human. Like the person coding the algorithm has a huge amount to do with it. it. It's not like some magic computer that's running rampant. It really is, especially with the work that I do. I can't talk for robotics. Um, but you are labeling the data. You are deciding what counts as data, what counts as not data. You are deciding what the target of the algorithm is. You are deciding what you want the objective of the algorithm to be the human makes all of the decisions and I think that this sort of perception of AI being this thing of its own has allowed computer scientists to really hide away from their responsibility in programming and developing algorithms because they've just made it seem like it's this sort of ethereal project when it really is actually controlled at pretty much every stage by um technicians yeah that's so like thank you for explaining all that that's really good clarification and i think and i think that that's you know what i've just said is what most people see ai as being and it's very convenient for scientists to make the general public see it as this very mysterious complex like weird thing because then they don't really have to take much responsibility for the outputs um and so a lot of my work is um, basically I'm doing something quite weird, which is critiquing AI. But as a technologist, a lot of AI critique comes from sociologists, um, anthropologists, people in the humanities, um, but not a lot by people who actually know how to write the code and develop algorithms and so my PhD research will be looking at monitoring forests. Um, my whole research is about applying machine learning to environmental issues. Um, so I'll be specifically looking at um, using acoustics, so embedding acoustic sensors into forest canopies um, and listening to the forest. 
And where the machine learning comes in is that those audio sensors are going to be picking up thousands and thousands of hours of, um, you know, the sounds from the forest. And, uh, and ordinarily, you would have a conservationist sort of sit down and listen to every single second of thousands of hours of um, audio recordings. And um, what I'll be working on is training a machine learning model to identify and classify different sounds. So um, anthropogenic sounds, um, so that's human-induced sounds like chainsaws, gunshots, trucks, anything associated with deforestation, degradation, and anthropogenic sound. And then on the other side, um, sort of natural sounds, um, species of bats, of birds, um, monkeys, frogs, all of these different animals, and identifying them too, and understanding how those anthropogenic sounds and their prevalence of degradation in the forest impacts the biodiversity and the health of the forest at the same time. So that's how I'm applying machine learning to an environmental issue, but other people in my course um, applying it say to oceanography or to um, predicting um, precipitation over the Himalayas which is really important for global water sources or um, how to um, better manage the grid for renewable energy like there's so many different applications but the crux of it is you are teaching through calculus and through mathematics um, you're trying to pick out patterns that would allow you to um, either predict or classify other objects in the future thank you again for explaining that i think it's, it's making it so much clearer that i have in my head like this misconception i guess from like learning more about sustainability and you know how man has destroyed the planet um <laughs> like just like all technology is bad all technology is not great um but like hearing how actually like we can use it to again like find these patterns and learn from nature is really important um, and so like I was saying, how do you think this sort of technology and AI can be applied to like creating our, our better world? I think the first step in applying any technology to making a better world is to understand that it is a tool and that it is not in itself a solution. And I think a lot more harm, <laughs> we make less ideal worlds by assuming that technology can be a scalable fix and applied to all locations with the same you know sweeping solutions um i think really well what my work is focused on is really um championing collaboration and championing championing co-creation and making sure that the solutions that are being created are created with the people in the location that the solution is going to be deployed in but also like specifically for that place. Um, and to get rid of this thinking that we can just transplant one technological solution from one country to another. And, and also kind of critiquing the way in which we think that people in the global south or in the tropics uh, need our technological solutions and can't develop their own and already don't have their own technologies. And I think this is just one more thing I want to add about technology is that we've got this conception that technology is like a phone or a computer, or but technology is much wider than that. Like, like and, and this is also another thing that I'm speaking about in my research, which is we always put indigenous knowledge as a separate thing. 
but like indigenous knowledge is science in itself it is technology in itself and communities have had their own technologies for millennia um and there's lots of work if you're interested in this on like indigenous ai it's a um um hawaiian and pacific islander group of um indigenous people who uh i guess yeah using ai but also talking about how ai existed for them prior to like what we currently know as ai in a more spiritual sense of the word and so there's a vast amount of sort of like activities going on where ai is being used in equitable ways or at least in ways that are led and designed by the people who are using them not by not co-opted by huge corporations who want to exploit and extract and so i think if we want to use ai you know to envision our better world it's really actually giving space for those for everyone to create their own solutions and decide where it is um applicable and where it would be the most valuable to apply those solutions um but yeah in terms of like practical tangible um kind of examples um i guess with my research if you if you better know what is going on in the forest if you are able to better understand the impacts and also demonstrate the impacts to local governments that they can't disagree with um we'll have a better time of allowing communities to take uh, governments to court and to protest against certain decisions being made so one example would be that um I'm going back to Ghana where my parents are from to do my research and a huge issue there is mining um, concessions being given within the forest um, but if you are able to demonstrate that that mining is having a like very specific impact on the forest in a tangible way that they can see on paper and that goes against say their Paris climate agreements or their own um, sort of local um, policies uh, then there's not much to argue with there and it's a shame that we have to do that much and you have to demonstrate that much because you'd hope that governments want to protect their people uh, without that but that's a, a huge part AI has to play is in getting a, a much broader sense of what is actually going on whether it's in ocean systems or it's in forest systems um, and present the facts in a very kind of blunt way that you can't argue with and that will hopefully implement um, what will sort of influence policy making and policy decisions um, and sort of more local community organising decisions because they can use that data um, to kind of bolster their organisations and their campaigns. That's a great way of looking at it. It kind of it's like a another weapon in the activist arsenal. Exactly, exactly. One thing that you said, which kind of leads on to my next question, and actually I've I've now learned something in the way that I've worded this, was like, talk, I, I was going to ask, you know, talking about indigenous solutions and knowledge versus technology. Um, and now you've kind of pointed out that, you know, they're, they're one in the same. Um, so yeah, thank you for highlighting that. I've, I've already learned something. My question was going to be, um, you know, how do you think we can balance the two of technology and indigenous practices so kind of taking what you've said how can we kind of flip that question on its head and just like I guess how can we just uh, appreciate indigenous practices and knowledge is better with I guess more kind of mo modern 
um, more stereotypical, like westernized versions of technology? I think it's really um, important to start questioning what we uh, define as science and what we define as technology from the get go, because um, our current definitions exclude a lot of other practices uh, that the nature of their experimentation, like one example is tracking, um, you know, like uh, tracking of animals, tracking um, of people. And, you know, that's a huge practice for millennia. You know, Aborigine um, communities have tracked, African communities all over Africa have tracked, and that is a form of science and technology. It doesn't fit into our current definitions of science and technology, but it is a science in itself to be able to have a hypothesis about something Hmm, I've seen this track and I think that this is this animal and they are probably going in this direction. They're probably going to end up in this place. Um, that is a science you're going, you're going off a hypothesis and practically um, experimenting as you go in order to um, kind of come across an outcome. Um, so I think, first of all, changing what our definition of science is because the Western definition of science we have and this sort of focus on rigour and on, like, objectivity, um, I just, I don't agree with and I don't think um, allow for really what science is, which is an expression of absolute creativity and curiosity. And I think a lot of the joy has been taken out of what science actually is. And I think that definition allows then more people and more practices to be included um, in science and technology and means that there could be more funding and that there could be more um, sort of um, publicity around people's practices um, to the same level as Western practices are you know, kind of revered and celebrated. And then I think the other thing is, really questioning whether a certain type of research should be done by a certain type of person and who would be best to conduct that research and who should be included in the design of that research and also who has control over that research because a lot of research that happens with indigenous communities most of those community members are not listed as authors on the paper they're not listed as co-scientists they're just listed as subjects which is grossly paternalistic and colonial um, and so I think that seeing indigenous community members as like equals and collaborators on research rather than like subjects which yeah I find a really gross part of science um, I just think it's all based in community it's all based in reflection of Am I the best person to do X, Y, and Z? Who should be the best person? And how can we bring in our mutual love or our mutual goals, whether that's with, you know, a climate solution, um, for the better? And it doesn't matter what the method is, as long as the method works and is equitable. It doesn't have to be a Western method. And we should, you know, feel, I think people are too comfortable, or get too uncomfortable by things changing and by being like, oh, but that's not, you know, the normal way of doing things um and I guess that's the point we don't want to do things in a normal way because who defines normal going back to like the definition of like science and stuff like that um reminds me of your um 
course, the Colonial History of Climate, because I remember you touched on that. So I'm, I'm suggesting that for everyone listening to go and take that course because it's amazing and you'll learn a lot. And it's very uh, beautifully done as well, which leads me on to um, a question I was asked about creativity, because within your work and especially with your platform, Climate and Colour, like it is done beautifully and it is very engaging in that way. Um, which is kind of like it's often difficult for me because it's like why do we have to make like caring about the planet so attractive like surely that's enough in itself um but I was wondering as you're interested in creativity um are there kind of any pieces of art or books or anything that's been inspiring that you lately to like be more imaginative Mm. yeah I mean I just have lots of art around my house that I just think is really beautiful um currently i'm reading um entangled life by merlin sheldrake which is quite interesting and there's lots of beautiful illustrations within his book it's all about mycology so basically mushrooms and how essential they are for pretty much all of life um so so yeah i just love the way that he's included sort of illustrations throughout the book um in terms of artwork, I think I just love coming across lots of different Instagram pages, lots of different illustrators who are making issues beautiful. And I think that although it's a shame that we have to make it beautiful, it's also a strength because we are visual creatures. We are creative creatures and we do respond emotionally to art. Um, and so it's really important and actually a really kind of central part of the action that we can take is engaging people through arts, through theatre. There's a new um, theatre production called um, Can I Live by Complicite and it's like an online theatre show all about, yeah, all about sort of um, environmental justice. And I think that the arts have such a great position right now that they need to use and stop sort of yeah, reduce how much, I guess, they're working for corporates and increase how much they're working to mobilise people around climate change. Because I think, you know, if you have, it doesn't always have to be so obvious. It always, it doesn't always have to be, I think that's the beauty of making, I guess, climate issues beautiful is that someone who might be put off by, oh, I, I don't care about the climate, the environment isn't my thing. You know, that's not my identity. I'm interested in these other things well if you can sort of I guess hide it you know how you kind of like hide a dog's medicine in like their I don't know in like their dog food it's like you know the message is still there but you've made it beautiful you've made it emotive and you've mobilized someone to make a change and of course that's only one part of you know of the whole um climate movement we can't just rely on you know making things beautiful because you know that doesn't always inspire everyone to action but I think it's a really great part that we could use the fun question that we end on on this show is um what's one thing you would invent in your ideal world? And it can be absolutely anything. It can be something silly. You can be like real guilty activist and like think of like a real high tech thing, which maybe actually won't be so guilty for you because you use technology for good. Um, so yeah, what would you invent? <laughs> hmm, what would I invent? I would invent 
some sort of like transportation that just like allowed you to go anywhere without you know having an impact on the world at all um you know I just I love journeys like I I I wouldn't even have to go anywhere I just like want to pass through like there's this book called um Women on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy and this is a example of a book actually where it talks a lot about climate but it's not actually like a climate book it also talks about a lot of other topics like mental health and um discrimination against um Latino women and abuse but half of the book is in this future world where gender doesn't exist where money doesn't exist where people live in their own sort of villages and decide their own journey so they might spend like four years of their life learning under this master painter and then they go and do something else and if and they don't have fast fashion but if they have parties they have like these clothes that are made out of these materials that just basically like dis- disintegrate when you like take them off they're like they're just not yeah anyway it's this like amazing place and they have this sort of public transport thing where you can just jump on and like kind of go around the whole world in it and like stop by other people's like they call them villages but I guess they're like cities I don't know anyway that's the image I have in my head of this just sort of never-ending public transport that's just like hovering in the air and you can go and visit other places um yeah that's a good one I've been thinking a lot about just I wish I was on a nice sunny holiday right now yeah so I would very much (laughs) like that and also on zoom I saw my face like light up at you explaining that book so I think that's a sign that I need to get it it sounded amazing um yeah Definitely going to note that one down. It's a really good book. And lastly, so to tie this up nicely in a bow, what is one thing that listeners can do to help make this world a reality? This nice slow paced (laughs) world where we've got public transport, which gets us anywhere. Um, Yeah. What can we do? I would actually say, I mean, there's so many things I'd want to say, but I think one thing that will help us get there is more people spending less time on social media. And I know that that sounds like a weird (laughs) instruction, but I feel like especially Instagram and Twitter, these hectic spaces and they put us in these hectic mind frames and then our brains are going at a million miles an hour and we start expecting things from other people and we start feeling entitled to other people and we are spending hours and hours a day on this virtual world where the one outside is slipping through our fingers and I just feel like if people spent less time on social media and spent more time with themselves not just in nature but like just sitting with themselves and diving a little bit more into their own like spiritual practice and that doesn't have to be religious and that doesn't have to be yoga or meditation or any of these things were sold but like um just sitting with themselves and connecting with real people in their communities and you know whatever access they have to the outdoor space I think like I just feel like that will change just the way that our brain our brains are wired up and we know that social media does rewire our brains in a very specific way and I think that when you go out and go on a walk 
really attentive, um, you start to get into the pace of that space. Like when I go to Cornwall, and that's where my boyfriend's from, you just assume a different pace because there is so much more to observe and there is so much, the pace there is just different um, from the birds, from the sea. Like there's, there's so much depth into what you're looking at. You could sit and watch the sea just go in and out for hours or just watch a fire like burn for hours and hours and be sort of mesmerised by the flames. And I think that by allowing ourselves to experience these sort of more intense um, moments of focus and concentration and joy and admiration um, for ourselves and for other people and for the natural world, we would lead much slower lives or at least much more considerate and less frantic lives. One thing I've been doing over the past year is like one of my one of my friends is very much someone who will just like look up and watch everything around and it very much inspired me over the past year when I was going on my lockdown walks to just to just look up and it is just that simple um and I guess going back to like one of your first answers about having that time and space like yeah if we all live in a world we're able to have that time to do that it would it would be a beautiful thing I love that point to end on so much coming on um i will say you're, you've told everyone to go off social media but i will say if you're <laughs> going to be on social media then you should follow joycelyn and yeah go and take a look at the amazing work she's doing and the the course that i mentioned earlier as well uh, it's another another beautiful world that i would love to live in and i hope one day that we get there <laughs> thank you so much for having me and yeah i'm gonna keep on working every day to try and make that world even a little bit possible so much once again for listening a little reminder that if you are listening to this before october the 15th you can come and watch a live recording of idealistically at the cheltenham literature festival joined by the amazing Arja Baba. i'm so excited for it slash a little bit nervous because i've not done a live podcast before so fingers crossed it goes really well whilst i have you and before you click off of this episode it would mean a lot to me if you could go ahead and give this podcast a review on whatever platform you're able to give it a share give it a retweet or a repost on instagram and twitter Follow the podcast on Instagram at idealisticallypod and on Twitter at idealisticallyp. You can give me a follow at Tolmea, that's T-O-L-M-E-I-A. And yeah, all that good stuff would be a big help in getting these versions of the future out there and to inspire more people to think more radically and out of the box about what they're actually fighting for. And on that note, I will talk to you next time. Sound and editing by myself and music by Stowe Gregory.